Listen to this clip real quick. I want, I really want to dive into this. A controversial bill has received the governor's signature. As well, yeah, HB7 or the individual freedom bill surrounds our children's education and how they learn about race. WPTV News Channel 5's Ryan Hughes joins us live now from our newsroom with reaction. Ryan. Honey and Kelly, the governor stopping at a school in Hialeah Gardens this afternoon for that bill signing, and he says this is an important part of freedom in the state of Florida. The bill passed in the legislature in March, and it has sparked national attention. We're here today because we believe in education, not indoctrination. Governor Ron DeSantis getting cheers inside a school in Hialeah Gardens Friday afternoon, moments before signing HB7, or the Individual Freedom Measure, into law, which bans educators from teaching certain topics related to race. We believe that every single student matters, every single student counts. We are not going to categorize you based on your race. The governor surrounded by supporters and some parents calling this bill bold and courageous. We do not want our children racially segregated. We don't want our children to be looked at through the lens of race. But the bill has also drawn criticism. Critics believe it's a form of censorship that avoids teaching students about the nation's racist past and will drastically limit race education in schools. We need to be able to talk about everything and make people feel included, not be excluded or exclude certain conversations because it makes people feel uncomfortable. The governor says the bill is designed to prevent teachers from making students feel guilt or shame about their race because of historical events. But those covering the legislature for decades say critical race theory is nothing but a political issue to fire up the governor's base. We all know that the fact of the matter is, is that CRT is not taught in the public schools in Florida, so we're getting rid of something that doesn't exist in our schools. This list of all the other ethnic AP courses he says are offered in Florida and say it's crazy how AP African American studies made the chopping block in Florida. The course is already being taught in more than 60 schools across the country, with many more planned next school year. All right, we are back for another great episode of Black Equity Podcast. We just heard a report from ABC News regarding an African-American's AP studies uh, fight that's going on in Florida. And I'm noticing a lot of these type of conversations are happening in the educational field. And I want to dive more into conversations like this. Now, you know me, in order for me to dive into a topic, I want to talk to someone who's actually living this on a day-to-day -day basis and actually doing the work. So joining us on today's episode is Dr. Carla Manning. She is the founder and CEO of the Equity Leadership Group and also the host of the Equity Experience Podcast. Welcome, Dr. Manning, to Black Equity Podcast. Good day. Good day, Derek. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here on your show and greetings to all of you um, who are listening and watching. This is going to be an exciting conversation. Thank you for taking time out to speak with us. So you okay. heard this, this news report, and I'm sure there's others across the nation. What's the first thing that comes to your mind uh, when you see a news report like this and how does it relate to the work that you're doing? Well, uh, to be honest, um, I have an emotional reaction as uh, typically my first response. Um, I, I get angry about it. It upsets me. It, it frustrates me because 
Um, I don't just see this as an attack on um, history or education. This is an attack on people's identities and people's lived experiences. And so um, I, I have an emotional response. This is, is you know, it, it, it sometimes it, it, it boils my blood, to be honest. Um, but I've, I've used that frustration to start my consulting company. Um, so that that's uh, my initial thoughts. Um, yeah. Um, a little bit about me. I'm a former um, teacher in Chicago Public Schools. I began my career as a high school English teacher. Um, I am a proud graduate of a historically black college. And so even upon graduating from Tennessee State University, shout okay. out to Tennessee State okay. that just won their first Grammy, um, the, the aristocrat of bands um, this past weekend. So I'm excited about that. Um, so even for me, I mean, graduating from a historically black college, there were a lot of conversations that I was having, even in undergrad around black education, black power and black identity. So, um, so when I graduated, um, I was just very eager to teach young people. Um, I was a, a high school English teacher, so I was excited about teaching young people um, different topics that I felt were culturally responsive. And, um, and African-American literature and studying the African-American experience was a big part of that. Um, I have a master's and PhD, both in curriculum and instruction. Um, I graduated from my PhD program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and then I went to uh, become a university lecturer in the CUNY system at Queens College. Um, since then, um, I retired, or quote unquote, retired myself <laughs> from, um, from the university life in New York City, and um, I am now a full-time entrepreneur um, with my company, the Equity Leadership Group. And so we primarily partner with school districts and universities to help them with their goals and efforts regarding diversity, racial equity, inclusion, culturally responsive education. And I mean, a, a prime service that we could easily offer is a school district that wants to develop African-American curriculum and African-American studies. So um, so, yeah, I mean, what DeSantis is doing or has done is very problematic and it's, it goes it, it's, it's goes against what we stand for within my company. But what he's doing is also kind of like the reason as to why I started this consulting company to work with schools um, that might not want to teach these materials getting them to a place or a sense of awareness where they see the value in offering um, African-American studies or Chicano studies or what have you. So that is a little bit about me. And for those of you all who are watching, please excuse the, the video technical problems I'm having, but if you're listening on audio, it's still all good. So that's a, a bit about me and, and who I am, what I do. So that raises up a, a really great question as you were saying that. Are, are school districts who aren't really looking to have equity and inclusion the prime candidate? Or is it the school districts that are looking to have and are desperate for your service? Who, I wonder who is more priority in a situation <laughs> like that? Right, right. Um, well, to be honest, the priority for me is, is, is the school district that is looking to do the work. 
um, because if if they are looking to do the work, then that means that they have and they've established some sort of a commitment to following through with providing these services. And a part of that commitment would also entail uh, the financial commitment, uh, meaning that they want to pay someone to develop services or what have you. Um, we don't, within my consulting company, we don't really work with people who are, who don't want to work with us. <laughs> right, right. So, so I don't spend a whole lot of energy trying to convince a school district as to why they um, should hire a DEI consultant. Um, I, I like to begin working with school districts who, who've already, they've established the value, they've established um, the necessity of partnering with the client or with, excuse me, with a consultant company like mine, and they want to move forward with those services. Um, but something can be said and should be said about the school districts who are not willing to make that commitment because that is the current landscape that we're in. And um, their beliefs and their position plays a big part in uh, kind of like these, these national conversations about why we need to prioritize racial equity and why we need to have African-American studies, for example. So, uh, so even though I don't uh, spend a whole lot of time trying to convince a school district to prioritize this work, those oppositions are also important because that is a part of the larger, the larger dialogue just as well. And just to give the school district another side of it, they could very well be interested in offering a more diverse uh, curriculum, but then there may be a higher power per se, such as uh, their local government who may be getting in the way. Have you Absolutely. seen that happening where the red tape is causing the, uh, the school district not to have oh, access yes. to what they want? Oh, yes. That's a big part of it because... First, we have to understand how policymaking happens in America. So the president of the country does not determine how education is, uh, how education happens. So in America, it's the governor who determines how education happens in that state. Mm. And then from the governor, then it trickles down to the mayor. From the mayor, it then trickles down to the school board and your local councilmen, local elected officials. So the president does not have say so because the way that America operates is the governor who establishes what that curriculum and education looks like. So when you have states that have um, who tend to have Democratic governors, those states tend not always, but they tend to be more favorable to work focused on equity, cultural responsiveness, because those ideas of 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 uh, uh, you know, progressivism and democracy tend to be more aligned with people who vote um, Democratic. But when you have states where the governors are Republicans or conservative, those positions, those values, they may see DEI work as anti-American or anti-democratic or whatever. So that then plays a part in what we see in those states. Um. To answer your question, though, there are a lot of school districts across the country that are really struggling to do this work. You have situations where you may have, say, for example, a black superintendent of a school district. 
that wants to be very intentional about having African-American studies, culturally responsive curriculum, hiring more teachers of color. That might be that black superintendent's agenda. But if that superintendent is coming into a school district that has a conservative school board that may not share those same values as that superintendent, there's there are going to be some clashes happening. Um, and unfortunately, I've seen or read situations where even the school board fired the superintendent mm. because the school board has that power. Usually right. the school board makes the choice as to who they hire for, for the superintendent. And so if they make the choice to hire a superintendent, they also have that same power to right. vote that superintendent out. And that, that happened to a black superintendent, I believe, in Texas. Um, the same example I just gave and they, uh, they did not agree. The school board did not agree with the agenda that the superintendent was trying to prioritize and they fired him. Wow. Um, and so, yes, I've seen examples. I've even had conversations with, with school boards and superintendents where that was the case where the superintendent wanted to prioritize his work, but the community of the school district, the school board, the parents, the families, they were not on board. And so there has to be alignment between the superintendent's agenda to prioritize racial equity. You know, the we'll we'll just we'll we'll just focus on racial equity because you are, your podcast is the black equity. Okay, so we, let's just talk yeah. about that. I won't use these other terms. Let's just talk <laughs> about just <laughs> Just, just either the black agenda or racial equity. That's that's the language that I'm going to use from here on okay. out. So, yes, if you have a superintendent that wants to prioritize anti-racism, racial equity, anti-blackness mm. strategies, there has to be alignment between what that superintendent wants to do and the school board being on board. So what is the common objection to a racial equity uh, insertion into the curriculum. What is the common objection, even if it's BS? I'm just curious what the common objection would be to having an equitable conversation around racial equity. All types of BS, Derek. I'm gonna be honest. For one, the first objection is why should we continue to focus on race? Hmm. Why does everything have to be about the black experience? Why do we always have to make everything about race? That's one of the common objections. Why is race still a conversation? And now, what do you I, say I have, to that? Oh, uh, <laughs> number one, <laughs> number one. As long as we continue to see racial disparities in student yeah. achievement data, that's the primary reason. Yeah. I'm I'm working. Let, let me let me pull up. I won't I won't say the name of this school district because I'm not gonna put them on blast. But let me just look at a school district. Let me see if I have it printed up. I don't even have it printed up. There's a school district. No, I do have it. And I, I want to say the name, but I don't want to put them out there. But they, a part of my work, here it is. A part of my work as a consultant is I write, I respond to proposals. So school districts can issue out RFPs, request proposals when they are looking for services. So I have a, a, a proposal right here. I won't say the name. And they issued a, a RFP for a racial equity audit. Okay. Okay. They want a, they want to hire a consultant to assess the landscape of racial equity within their district. Now, this school district has 
made it very clear in the RFP that in 1992, a racial discrimination complaint was made against the district by advocates for African-American students in the blank public schools. The Human Relations Commission found that this school district unlawfully discriminated against its African-American students with respect to excessive, excessive suspensions and harsh discipline, distribution of class grades, exclusion from certain special programs, and by virtue of the existence of a large racially identifiable academic achievement gap between African-American and white students. So that's one of the major reasons as to why we need to prioritize racial equity. As long as we continue to see that black students are overrepresented with harsh discipline and suspension rates, are underrepresented in talented and gifted programs, are underrepresented with being referenced to honors and AP courses. When African-American students and Latino students continue to experience bullying and other racial discrimination within their school district, that's one reason why we need to continue to prioritize racial equity. So that's, that's okay. Mm -hmm. When I hear most of what, what I heard there, mm -hmm. a lot of that is more, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it feels more administrative then it actually is about the subject matters that they're learning, which I think should also have some uh, diversity in it as well. But the, as you're saying that, I'm taking myself back to the PWI type of high schools, middle schools I was in. A lot of what I saw back then was the administration's view of students and how they treated those students mm -hmm. was a big part of, to me, what needed an audit on. Absolutely. It would have been great also to have like AP African-American studies and, right. and then also have things we can study. That part would be wonderful. That's right. just icing on the cake. But right. I just want to be treated fairly before anything right. else. That's right. Is, is a lot of your work like more on the administrative side or? It's everything. Okay. Because it's because what you're speaking to, Derek, is the inclusion aspect. Mm -hmm. We're, what you're referring to is the racial inclusion. See, as I always like to say, diversity is who we are, equity is what we do, but inclusion is how we feel. Right. And right. see, what you're speaking to is the, the culture and the environment of the teaching and learning space that a student experiences when they are in school. So when they come to class, when they come to school, do they feel accepted because of their, because of, uh, as a Black student? Do they feel that they are in an environment that appreciates their blackness? Or do they feel that this is a toxic environment, a hostile environment, a racially hostile environment? And those are all aspects of inclusion, but that, that speaks to the culture. And see, yes, it is up to the administration and the leadership to promote a racially inclusive environment for their students. So it's not just about curriculum. The curriculum is just one aspect, but you're right, it is a bigger, it's more to it than just curriculum. There is a bigger conversation. And it's not just curriculum. It's not just what we're learning in a class, but it is also about that inclusion aspect just as well. So when your company is asked to perform an equity audit, mm -hmm. how what procedures are you going through that you're allowed to share? I don't want to give away the secret sauce. Oh, you're good. You're good. <laughs> But what type of procedures do you go through when you're looking at a school system or individual school, whatever it may be? What type of things are you looking for in that in the audit? Oh, we're looking for a whole lot. 
Now, let me also kind of preface it. Um, some of it also de depends on the budget, okay? Mm -hmm. Because we can go as deep as we can, but some of it depends on, you know, the budget, okay? Right, right. <laughs> but but generally speaking, we there are a few things that we're looking at. Um, number one, we're doing focus groups. So we're interested in having conversations with teachers, with students, with parents, and we are asking very specific and targeted questions about their experiences, their perceptions, what they're learning. We're asking questions about their feedback and their thoughts about administration. That's one. Um, we are also looking at discipline data because that is a huge thing. Um, oftentimes in many school districts, there are overrepresentations of males um, receiving harsher discipline um, compared to girls. And that is even more pronounced for males of color, boys of color, okay? Um, we're looking at uh, experiences with special education and disability because oftentimes there's a lot of disproportionality involved with that. Um, I'm, I'm actually releasing a podcast pretty soon just talking about disproportionality and special ed, meaning that a lot of times, for example, Black male students tend to be overly classified as having a learning disability or an emotional behavior. And um, that's very problematic um, in many ways. Um, oftentimes Latino students are classified as having a speech and language problem um, because they are learning the language. Well, a Latino person learning the language of English is not necessarily a language disability. They don't necessarily have a speech disorder. What they need is extra supports in the school, but that's not necessarily a language disability. But if a school is operating with racial bias against Latino students, they may classify that as a, as a language disability or a speech impediment where that's not the case. So an equity audit gives us an opportunity to do what's called a root cause analysis to figure out not only do we have these problems, these overrepresentations of Black males, especially ed or underrepresentation of black of black students and talented and gifted an equity audit can help us to identify that but then we can also go deeper to figure out why that is the case so why are black students or students of color not being recommended to talented and gifted classes why do we have an overrepresentation of white students in your honors classes and talented and gifted but not a lot of students of color well let's go back and look at the systems and procedures that are in place that are involved with recommending a student to talented and gifted classes. Um, also, we're looking at documents, we're looking at data, okay? Um, for example, um, and this is something that I like to do, one of my secret sauces, you mentioned secret <laughs> sauce. Sometimes when meeting with the school district, they may say, well, we don't really have problems with bias or discrimination in our school." Okay. Mm -hmm. Now that can be a superintendent that doesn't want to look at the, the man in the mirror, as I like to say, mm -hmm. because the equity audit does just that. That's one of my favorite songs by Michael Jackson, but because I'm a female, I like to say woman in the mirror. But anyway, that's one of my favorite songs, probably my most favorite song by him because it's such a powerful song. But I always like to say that an equity audit gives it. That's the man in the mirror. That's an opportunity for that school district to look at themselves for who they really are. So one of the things that I like to do or that my team and I that we like to do is we like to go to the Office of Civil Rights website. Now, the U.S. Department of Education has an office called the Office of Civil Rights. 
And this office specifically deals with discrimination, harassment, bullying, and bias complaints made by students, parents, or teachers within a school district. Just by right of being an American citizen, you can report to the federal government if you feel that you have been racially discriminated or have had experiences of racial bias or bullying or harassment within your schooling experience. You can report your experiences to the federal government. Wow, I did not know this. Wow. You have that right. So if a if a if a if a black parent feels that their child is being discriminated against, and if they have evidence, if they have emails, if they have if they've been taking notes, anecdotal notes, you can report your experiences to the federal government. That's what the Office of Civil Rights does. Okay? If, even if you do, if, if you can allow me to do a screen share, I can even show you, but we can, um, we can do that. Okay? Can, can we do a screen share? Yes, I'm, I'm granting you access right now. And see, here's another thing too. So a parent, uh, any parent, not just race, you know, just for for uh, for all fairness, you know, any parent who feels that they may be discriminated against, because it can go in all sorts of ways, disability, language, religion, okay? But let's, you know, we're talking about uh, race and racial equity and blackness. So you can go to this website, okay? U.S. Department of Education, Office of Civil Rights, okay? Now, right here. What to do if you see or experience discrimination? This is where you can file a complaint, okay? And if you click on this, they give you the whole setup, the whole alley-oop, okay? How to file a dis uh, discrimination complaint. You have the complaint form, okay? And this is actually a form because I pulled it up. Let me see. Um, I don't know. This is amazing. I didn't even know yeah. this existed. yeah. Here's the PDF version of it, of the form, okay? Because, see, th this is how, historically, this is how we have seen progress in the, in, in the federal government mm -hmm. with, um, with outlawing discrimination because it has come from parents and students um, documenting this. But this is a form, and I've, I feel that they've made it pretty accessible, Okay, um, and you describe what sort of discrimination, race, color, origin, sex, disability, age, okay, so on and so on. And then, you know, they're asking you to provide the information, dates, things of that sort, what the story was, etc. All right, let's go back. All right. Now, this Office of Civil Rights also has information literally about every school district. Go to civil wow. rights data. Wow. Every school district in this country. So if a school district, if I'm talking to a prospective client and if they try to come at me with this, oh, well, we don't have discrimination in our schools. Oh, you all don't. Okay. Well, let's, let me just go on this website right. and let me go and pull up your school district to find out what's going on. All right. So like let's uh let's go to civil rights data. Oh, this is it. But it's 
this isn't the right website, the right web page, because there's a particular, um, let me, let me just stop sharing because I actually just shared this with the school district, um, literally just the other day. So just give me one second. Um, all right. So, uh oh. All right. Okay. So, ocrdata.eb.gov. And of course, you know, we always want to verify that these are real because the .gov is what we're looking for. But this is it the Civil Rights Data Collection. So, the website, ocrdata.gov.ed.gov. Uh, so this is where you can literally go to a, a school, literally any school district in the country, in the state, in the in yeah, in the country. Now I'm just gonna type in Chicago Public Schools only because I used to work there, and um, you know, it's just a, a school district. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't, I haven't even done this myself, so I don't know what can come up. All right. So, you know, you'll see all of these schools. I mean, these are all like, you know, just a bunch of schools. So I'm just typing in Chicago School of the Arts. Okay. So, but you can also look at by school district or by school. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so this reports all of the information. You can see how many black students are enrolled, how many white students, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. But when we go to right here, discipline, restraints, harassment, and bullying, Okay, we see some data. So right here, the majority of students who are receiving in-school suspensions at this particular school are Black students, 60%. Wow. 60%. Right there. Right there. The website. Right there. And the other group are 35%, and white students are 3%. So immediately, my question, why is this a disparity? Why are why are black and Latino students the highest group of students receiving in school suspensions? What's happening? I have a question that's floating in my mind. Mm -hmm. I, I want to make sure I get this out. Because I've heard this before that mainly in Atlanta, I'm not saying let, let's keep up Chicago, but mm -hmm. mainly in Atlanta, they'll say stuff like, well, I didn't necessarily experience uh some of what other people experience because majority of my school is all black so i ha i just want to see if there's a myth to this or not what, what your experience is if the majority of the school is black does that mean it's already equitable oh no and see as black people we have to we have to have a mindset shift about that I, i've had to have a mindset shift the unfortunately the tyree nichols uh murder is a prime example of that that's a prime example and see, as Black people, we have to also keep in mind that because we have our citizens of America, we too, James Baldwin talks about this too, we too have are susceptible to embodying uh, white supremacy values, white privilege mm -hmm. values, anti-Blackness values, right. unfortunately. Right. That has been a part of our own psychological and social conditioning as Black people. Naeem Akbar talks about this in a lot of his work. Claude Anderson, uh, uh, not Claude Anderson, who are some other psychologists? Frances Press-Welsing Press talks about this in her work in the ISIS papers. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and so that is a total myth. And see, for schools where there is Black leadership and Black instructional staff, 
we also have to have to realize and accept that we may have our own racial biases against black people. Right. And see, DEI work is not just for white people. You know, and, and I've had to admit that even as I was, a, when I was a teacher and I realized this, I didn't realize this for myself until I started my PhD program where I had the opportunity to reflect on my teaching experiences, having a black female professor, shout out to Dr. Gloria Latson Billings, the godmother of culturally responsive education. But in her class, her, her teaching caused me to realize that I had my own racial biases that I had, I was not willing to accept as a teacher. Why? Because I'm black. And I thought that that conversation did not apply to me. But I realized, man, I had racial biases against black male students. If a black boy came into my classroom and if he, his pants were sagging <laughs> and if he didn't do what I tell him to do, I was quick to kick him out. But I didn't treat the girls that way. You know, and so to answer your point, that is a problem. And, and black schools have to be willing to take ownership of that. You know, um, that's a deeper conversation, a conversation that we may not want to have. But see, the again, the Tyree Nichols example is a prime example of that. Just Unfortunately. To, just to put it on, on wax, my reflections as when I was growing up, my favorite teachers were black teachers mm -hmm. and my least favorite teacher. Now, this is a guy who predominantly went to white schools, just mm -hmm. there were mostly white schools, but I did have black teachers here and there. And my favorite teachers were black, but my least favorite teachers tended to be black. There would mm -hmm. always be one or the other. And mm -hmm. I found that the the least favorite teacher that was black, I they would single out the other black kids in the class, mm -hmm. the one or two that would be there or whatever right. it may be. And they were harder on us for whatever reason. We didn't even do anything yet. Right. And so, you know, twenty something years later, here we are having a conversation. And I don't know what was in their mind. I don't know what biases they had, but we were always more uh, at risk of getting in trouble mm -hmm. from someone who looked like us than right. someone who didn't. I never understood it, but right. now I'm starting to gain some clarity. Yeah, and one of the reasons is because as as black people we have also, we're also susceptible to some of the same biases, actions, and behaviors that mirror white supremacy or, right. or white privilege, you know? As much as we don't want to have that conversation, we have to have that conversation with ourselves. Not in a deficit way, not in a problematic way, but to just recognize the truth in the matter. And again, that's why I, um, reference some black psychologists who also talk about these same concepts in their in their scholarship so this this is a phenomenon that that deserves exploration on our part as 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 black people if you could take me on the other side of the audit so you audit the school mm -hmm. we find that you know these type of students have been uh you know ex expelled or bullied Mm -hmm. We find that the curriculum is missing this. We find all the areas. So then how does all this get implemented into the school district? And what type of work are you doing with the school districts to make sure that it's done efficiently? Right, right. So one, here's the first thing is that we always like to preface by saying that, that this work is a process. For a school district that is making a commitment, let's say that this is a school district that has a white superintendent. Um, they are very new to this work. 
they're making this commitment, but they're very new to this work. This is going to be a, a process, meaning that we're talking about three to five years for us to do a thorough investigation, to analyze the findings of the audit, to make recommendations, and then to develop strategic initiatives, and then to implement those initiatives. That is a whole thing. <laughs> that is a process. It requires planning. It requires commitment. And it requires courage. Um, but it's a process. So after the audit has been completed, the, the next step is then to share those findings and write that into a report. And then to share that report with the stakeholders, whether that's the school board, whether that's the parents, the students. Um, after that, then you may have some recommendations. So what are some next steps to think about after the audit? So for example, if there is a school district that has racial disparities within their student discipline data, then we may wanna think about examining the discipline practices and bringing in more say restorative justice and restorative practices. But let me say, and let me even refer back to this RFP here. And again, I won't say the name of this school district, but they also have made it clear. And I, I want to even share it that even for this school district, they also, um, I'm trying to read exactly how they framed it, but, but they made it clear in the RFP that even after, okay, here it is, here it is, here it is, here it is. Let me read this statement here. While there have been advancements in this district's efforts through the creation of a board equity policy and equity plan, the establishment of an equity office, ongoing equity professional learning, and targeted practices and processes to address racial disparities, Stubborn results report categories that continue to keep racial equity elusive and the district's African-American student population remains in the lowest access categories. Mm. So this school district is, is also saying that even after they have done an equity audit, even after they have developed the equity team, an office, even though they have put in PD focused on racial equity, and they've established processes and practices to eliminate racial, racial equity, they still continue to see that African-American students are still performing less than their white counterparts. Mm. And this is the school district that's acknowledging this. They, they even state that African-American children on average are 108% more likely to receive long-term suspensions. 108% more likely. What uh, age group is this? Or is it high These, school? This, this is a school district, so they're, it's just K-12. Okay, okay. 108%. Even after have done some of this equity work, they still continue to see these problems. So this is this is also saying that for a school district to think about changing or becoming more racial equity, in some cases, it's going to require a total overhaul of the system of the district in terms of how they're even operating. 
it's going to require, and you know, I, I still have to get clarity on what that might look like, but they, it's something deeper there. It's something deeper than just hiring more black people. It's, it's more to it than just having an African-American studies curriculum. It's, it's deeper than that. Because essentially this school district is saying that they've done that and they still see problems in terms of racial disparities. And what do you think, well, this is one of my favorite questions to ask people. What is the, the pattern amongst a lot of these different school districts that you're working with where there may be something that's intangible that may be causing this to occur? Is there something that maybe we can't even see that is the culprit to something like this? I My personal belief of that is that a lot of this is still going back to how Black people are or are not conceptualized as human beings. Mm. I think that's at the core of a lot of this. Tell, oh, you got to talk to me more about that. What do you mean well, by that? At, at, well, what I'm saying, I'm going back to the three-fifths of uh, mm language in the constitution that that slave that black people were only considered three-fifths human right this is also rooted in the still ongoing argument about reparations see the mm -hmm. problem with reparations is really about the government acknowledging that slavery was wrong against black people but they don't want to issue the reparations because they know that in issuing the reparations they have to admit that they were wrong and holding black people captive stealing black people from our native continent our native our native uh, home place and by essentially dehumanizing us as human beings that is that's a part of the reparations and i think that's at the core of a lot of this is that there is still um an invisibility of black people being recognized as legit human beings and i think that that plays a role in how school systems develop their processes how how teachers treat black students when they show up i think it also plays a role in how black people how we even see ourselves you know and as i always like to say even as as black men black men and black women we have to see ourselves as kings and queens for ourselves every day you can call me a black queen and I can call you a black king, but it doesn't matter if you don't see yourself that way. And it doesn't matter if I don't see myself that way. So I think that's at the core of a lot of this is how we are, how black people are positioned as human beings, but then also how we see ourselves and how we show up within schools. No, and I, I, that's, mm -hmm. that's just my personal sort of opinion mm -hmm. is that I think that there's still a lot of disharmony with black humanity and black people essentially being recognized as human beings in this country. That's, that's still the core of a lot of these problems. You ever watch the show, the wire? I, you know, a little bit, okay. but Omar running around with his French <laughs> yes. coat on. And yes. My boy Omar. Scared. Yeah. Rest in peace. To, rest um, in peace to Michael. Yeah. Oh, I can't remember the last name. Yeah. Yes. My brother, mm -hmm. Michael. Mm -hmm. Um, so the first season, I'll give just a, a quick. Mm -hmm. The first season, they go straight into the streets. They're selling drugs. They're going against the cops. The second season, they go to the port of Baltimore, and that's where the drugs are being brought in uh, to the city. And everybody really doesn't like that 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 um, that season because they say it's slow, it's boring. 
but it's one of my favorite seasons because it showed you how the drugs are getting into the city. Sure. And then the third season, I believe, is when we swoop down into the school system. Mm-hmm. Or it may be the fourth season. I can't remember if it's third or fourth. But either the third season is when we go into the politics and we see the mayor, mm-hmm. or it's the fourth season uh, where we go into the educational system. Either way, it's like building on top of each other. Sure. And eventually we get to the school system. And then when we get to the school system, what I'm noticing is very similar to what you're saying is, yes, you can have all the greatest things to your school system. You can have, you know, the bells and whistles and computers and whatever it may be, but there's still a life outside of those walls. Right. There's still stuff going on in that city that that person, uh, older brother may be on the street corner selling drugs. Right. Their their mother may have been impacted by those drugs or Uh, maybe they've been uh, harassed by the police or or maybe they're uh, on some type of government program, government assistance, whatever right. it may be. Right. There are things that are impacting the school system that the school system can't really always account for. Right. And so I'm curious, is there an additional step that uh, society has to take to bridge a school system to its outside environment and if there is what do you think it is well i mean you you answered the you you have a question but your answer is right there in the question that's that is the answer is that the school has to do a better job of connecting the student to the family and the community outside of the school mm. let me give you a historical example um there's a author a favorite author of mine her name is vanessa siddle walker and she wrote a powerful book called uh, In Their Highest Potential. And there's a subtitle after it, but that's the first title, Their Highest Potential, Vanessa uh, Siddle Walker, uh, to a hyphenated last name. But in her book, she documents a case study of the, what was it, the North Carolina uh, training school. I forget the name of the school. But essentially, in this in this book, she documents this historical research where she makes the argument of how this one Caswell Caswell Training County Caswell County Training School I think is the name of the school district. Okay. But she she does a case study on this school to document and to make the argument that prior to Brown. Okay, now that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> it's it's picking apart Brown versus Board. I was just having a conversation with my mother about this this morning. But prior to Brown, so prior to 1954, Vanessa Siddle Walker documents this historical research that shows how black people created success for black students within a racially segregated environment. Mm. And her argument was that the teachers, the school leaders, yes, 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 their their highest potential. An African-American school community in a segregated South. So, right, she talks about North Carolina, right, and the name of the school is something with Caswell. Powerful book. It's a historical book. But, right, yeah, I was right. Caswell County Training School, yeah. So what she describes in this book is basically how Black teachers Black school administrators and Black students played an active role in promoting success for Black students. She has a chapter for each of those populations. One chapter is talking about what the Black administrators did. Another chapter talks about what the teachers did. 
Another chapter talks about what the parents were doing. And another chapter talks about what the students were doing. See, we also got to put responsibility on the kids. Because students have to be responsible for their own learning just as well. That's important. Students cannot just say, oh, my teacher didn't teach me this. My teacher, no, 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 no. You have to take responsibility for your own learning just as well. You play an active role in your own learning. But anyway, she talks about what, what, what these folks were doing and how they were promoting success. But one of the core elements, the core themes, is that they value the knowledge from the community. But that goes back to what I was saying, prioritizing Blackness, elevating the humanity of Blackness, not looking at Blackness in a deficit way. And see, when we move forward towards history, after Brown, and when we move forward towards history in terms of Black people removing themselves from the, race, from the rural environments of the South and moving to more modernized areas in, in America, to more urban cities, industrial cities, a, a, one of the things that I feel that we lost is that community of Black people. And so a lot of times, well, let me, let me uh, back up. Going back to Vanessa Siddle Walker, what she does is she she makes the argument that one of the one of the reasons why Black folks were successful within the Caswell County Training School is that essentially they learn how to leverage and capitalize on the community assets of the Black community. But in other words, they did not see the they did not see their Blackness or the Black community in a deficit way. They understood the value that came from Black people working together. They understood the value of the village, Woo-hoo. Right? right? And so they understood um, how to tap into that and how to use that to help Black students be successful. Unfortunately, after Brown, we lost a lot of that Black community. After Brown versus Boer, we lost a lot of that Black community. See, she touched, look at this, which, which operated from 1934 to 1969. When did Brown happen? Brown happened in 1954. So it took it took about a good decade, about a good five to ten years for the policies of Brown to, to, to be rolled out. But around the late 60s, 70s, and 80s, we started to see what, what Linda Tillman calls the unintended consequences of Brown versus Boer. Now, this is a black female scholar, Linda Tillman, who argues that there were a lot of what she calls unintended consequences of Brown versus Ford. And one of those consequences was that the black community, the black village essentially got broken up. And, um, and a lot of schools lost that community connection to, uh, to black communities. And that was one of the unintended consequences of Brown versus Ford. Because see, Brown versus Board put policies in place that what? Desegregated schools. And the US government made this claim that black schools, a school such as the Caswell County Training School, was a what? Racially segregated school. And so because of that, Brown versus Board unintendedly broke up a lot of schools such as the Caswell County Training School. Right. Because the policies in place with Brown versus Board said that what? Schools could not 
racially segregate. So the U.S. government pulled a slick one on us. And they said, oh, okay. Well, if white schools are considered racially segregated, then guess what? So are your all-black schools. I think about that a lot. Whenever we're fighting for things, I'll always take a step back and say, but if, if that goes through, right. there's a loophole. What's the what's the what's the consequence? What do we lose? You got to be careful when right. you're saying don't do this because right. it may be something that we right. kind of already doing ourselves that, that might be, be working. Right. You know, this is a informational war game. That's right. So we got to be very mindful of what we're demanding. That's right. We have to demand it of ourselves. That's right. And see, that was now I'm, you know, of course, I'm I'm still a champion of Brown versus War. But I, I also recognize that that black community, we took a lot of hits. We 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 took a lot of um, losses, a lot of L's with Brown versus Boer. And one of those L's was that number one, we lost a major part of our black teaching workforce. We yeah. also saw that after Katrina, we lost a lot of black teachers in New Orleans after Katrina. That was one. The second thing that we lost from Brown versus War was the breakup of schools, such as the Caswell County Training School that Vanessa Siddle Walker talks about in his book. A third loss that we took in the Black community was the separation of, of the Black community and Black culture within schools. Mm -hmm. And so when you have the influx of white teachers coming into Black communities and Black schools, they're not coming in with the same... They're not coming in with the mindset of embracing black culture the same way that black teachers would. See, you have a Caswell County training school. You got grandmas working in there. You got big mamas working in there. You have black grandfathers working in here. You have black professionals who are all involved in this whole story that she talks about. But that was a very common experience. But see, after Brown versus Board, a lot of that got separated. And again, that's why she, even she can only document this up until 1969, because historically at that time, Brown versus Board began to separate and segregate a lot of those movements. And like I was saying, go ahead. All right, we've been able to really touch on a lot of great topics, and I have a feeling that you and I uh, will be uh, keeping in touch and sharing uh, more intel with each other, but I really want to make sure that our audience has access uh, to all the great work you're doing. And so uh, for those watching on Spotify, uh, right now I'm pulling up the uh, website for your company the equity leadership group yeah. and i just want to go over just some of the services that you offer and how people can uh, potentially uh, collaborate with you and work with you sure 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 sounds good all right so we have the website up in front of us and one of the things i noticed because you know we during this episode we talked about equity audits. We talked about uh, a little bit about uh, uh, staff development, leadership. But what is the executive coaching that you offer? Tell me a little yes. bit more about that service. Absolutely. 
coaching is important. And, um, and so essentially coaching is helping people to problem solve. It's helping people to go from point A to point B. So coaching is a bit different from trainings or workshops because trainings and workshops are more uh, providing high-level research and strategies and information about a particular topic. Um, but trainings are more sort of, you know, class, seminar, instructional. Coaching is more dynamic and is, is more personal. Mm-hmm. So coaching is, is saying, okay, I've attended a training, but I need help or support in this area. How can you help? So for example, um, a person may, may want to, a, a superintendent may want to receive executive coaching to help them become more racially equitable or more mm-hmm. racially inclusive. They need to have very personal one-on-one conversations to help them to identify their racial biases while also helping them to be more racially inclusive. And those are more personal conversations that you just cannot necessarily have in a training because a training might be in front of 30 people, 50 people, or 200 people, whereas coaching can be one-on-one or it can be small teams. So there may be a school that may have five principals on their staff and all five of these principals need help with being more racially inclusive or having a racially inclusive mindset. Mm -hmm. So we may have coaching sessions where we're actually talking through and unpacking what are some of their biases that they may have? What are some challenges that they may have? So coaching allows us to get very personal, but not too, too personal because it's not therapy, but, and I don't, let me rephrase from personal, but it allows us to be more vulnerable. Let me say it like that. Coaching allows us to be more vulnerable and authentic with our personal problems. Okay. That's probably how I want to say it. So it is more personal, but it's an opportunity for us to be more authentic, more transparent, more vulnerable about our own personal issues regarding with, you know, in regards to a particular topic. So coaching, coaching, uh, it, it, it invites people to be more vulnerable with their, with their challenges. You know, as I was listening to that, I was picturing, um, I was picturing a when you mentioned the principles. I've I find I find that a lot of times people um, they know that they're doing something wrong, but they're you know afraid to admit it in front of the the crowd, the group. Right. They don't right. want to admit their shortcomings. Right. Um, and so I think that would really give whether it be a principal, whoever it may be, uh, that one-on-one time to say, look, I, you know, I have, I used to have this passion to be this wonderful principal and maybe I've, I've hit a rut or maybe I've reached a a point I've plateaued out and I want to get that fire back. Right. And I think that this could be a really great opportunity, especially if you find that one of the reasons why the fire may be going out a little bit is because you don't understand how culture and society is changing around you. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, that's that's awesome as well. And then before Absolutely. I talk a little bit also about your podcast, I want people also uh, just to know about uh, your podcast and what you have working on there. Uh, we talked a little bit about this before, uh, but curriculum development. Mm-hmm. If you could tell me a little bit about how that works in the work that you're doing. Absolutely. 
So a uh, uh, primary focus within my company is that we intentionally like to work with schools who are intentional about developing their existing curriculum to be more culturally responsive and or to be more focused within a particular area. Um, and this can vary. So say if you have a school district that has a mandated science curriculum mm -hmm. and they know they have a culturally and racially diverse student population and they know that the students of color are uh, show lower performance uh, measures compared to white students within science. And so this superintendent says, well, I want to make my science more culturally responsive. So we could potentially partner with the school district that has that need to modify, to examine their existing curriculum, examine their existing lesson plans and offer modified lesson plans or offer completely new lesson plans and new curriculum that's taking their existing concepts of science, but integrating more um, ideas and concepts that focus more on culture, identity, et cetera. Um, it can also very much, very well be a school district that does not have a African-American uh, curriculum, right? Mm -hmm, African-American mm -hmm. studies curriculum, but they want to have an African-American studies curriculum. Maybe this is a school district that has an all white staff and they have a lot of black students and they really don't have a black person on their staff that is qualified to develop an African-American studies curriculum. So they could contract us um, to develop that curriculum for them. Um, it could also work with LGBTQ. You know, a lot of schools are also moving towards LGBTQ. So once again, it can be a school district that does not have any sort of curriculum focused on LGBTQ, and they want to have more lessons um, speaking about LGBTQ history. So it really depends. Um, we can also do curriculum audits, and this is oh. very important. Okay. So with curriculum audits, we provide um, services where we analyze their existing curriculum and we can say, okay, these are, uh, these are some issues that we see in your curriculum. So we can do a textbook analysis. We can do a standard analysis where we can actually review the uh, materials that students are using in their classrooms to help school leaders understand what the problems are. So we can say, well, this textbook that you're using for your 10th grade American literature class is problematic. And these are the reasons why this textbook is problematic. So if you want to be more culturally responsive in your curriculum, these may be some changes that you need to make. Love that. Love that. And, and before I talk about the podcast, I have noticed that you offer abundance of resources. Absolutely. Uh, what's one of the main things you want people to know about that you're offering on your website that they can access? Um, let me see, go up. Um, right here is, I would say, sort of two things. The Courageous Conversation Protocol is, is always um, a very uh, necessary topic because that is a, a major challenge that many school districts, uh-oh, I got to update this. Uh, <laughs> thank you for sharing that. Um, but, but he has a book, Glenn Singleton also has a book, but uh, with Courageous Conversations, the idea is that there could be protocols put in place to help people to have conversations about race, anti-racism, discrimination. 
in my work, I find that that is a major challenge that school districts have is that they do not know how to effectively communicate about issues of race, racism, bias, or discrimination. People just don't have those communication skills. Right. And when those communication skills are not there, then that leads to a lot of other problems that we continue to see. So having conversations and learning how to have conversations is a big step in helping school districts to be more racially equitable and racially inclusive. It's learning how to have those conversations. And one of the, the ways that I first came across the work that you're doing uh, was through Instagram. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to get a flood of equity conversations that come to me. Uh, sure. It's the, the name Black Equity. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was following your work. I would see these different clips that you're working on. Mm-hmm. And then it led me to start clicking around and seeing uh, the different things that you're working on. Sure. And so uh, even on the website, it talks about your podcast. Mm-hmm. So I guess this is the uh, chicken and, and egg uh question did the podcast come first did <laughs> which one wh- how did the podcast uh uh born or be- become sure sure so thank you thank you for this exposure to Derek. um so first the the business and let, let me let me i guess sort of back up to say why and how i even started the business um but the podcast came after the business but i started this company because um I I knew that I wanted to, first of all, I knew I wanted to have a consulting company because I knew that I wanted to provide these sort of services. But it initially started because I wanted to do DEI work at the university where I was teaching. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to be a part of a DEI committee, but essentially my uh, supervisor uh, did not grant me that opportunity. She pretty much shut me down and said that I was not really allowed to do the I work at that institution. So I took that personal and I said, well, I'm going to start my own business because she can't tell me what to do. So, <laughs> <laughs> so then that's how the equity leadership group was born because essentially I just put together the services that I, that I took from teaching and that I developed as, as having a PhD and that formed into a consulting business. Um, the podcast started because I knew I wanted to have these conversations. Um, and I knew that there was a lot that I had to say about equity and race and inclusion and things of that sort. And I wanted to um, create a platform to basically give free resources and free information to help people think about um, how they're showing up as DEI leaders within their school or DEI educators. So um, I have conversations about all sorts of topics, Mm -hmm. dealing with um, diversity, dealing with Blackness, race, identity, um, strategies, um, all sorts of conversations that can help people to get started. And so my podcast also is, is also geared towards people who are very new to DEI work. So I would mm-hmm. say that my podcast is, is, is good for people who are just getting started with, with uh, prioritizing racial equity within their district or prioritizing DEI. But on a podcast, I 
try to it's, it's a it's a very educational and informative podcast mm-hmm. so i even um especially within some of the the most recent episodes i've i've just started to do not in like these episodes but in the episodes in the 50s and the 60s mm-hmm. um i have also what's called learning resource guides okay and so those learning resource guides are uh again those are those are free resource guides that people can download that can help them to have these further conversations with themselves. Um, so yeah, so the podcast is 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 a it's a good space for people to learn more about um, promoting DEI and promoting racial equity within their within their districts, their institutions, and within their organizations. So I want to put out a message to the universe and for those listening to uh, this portion of the podcast. What, what and who would be a really great resource to help you continue and fulfill your mission, whether it be additional people to be on your podcast, to have conversations with, whether it be uh, a type of professional that you would like to work with uh, in the DEI space or outside of the DEI space, what types of people can we attract through uh, this conversation who may have tuned in and says, saying to themselves, oh, this is somebody I want to work with? Sure. That's a beautiful question. A lot of people. <laughs> um, you know, one one of the key people are people who are decision makers within their organization. So people who are responsible for hiring contractors, people who are responsible for signing contracts. Um, and those people tend to be folks who are superintendents of a school district. Those are people who can be presidents of a school board. It can even be a principal. Um, those are all three three positions within the school district that have uh, power to be decision makers to hire a person like me to come into their district. Um, some key people, though, would also be people who operate at the state level. So you yeah. have, um, like, say, uh, state agencies of, of a state. Right. North mm-hmm. Carolina, for example, is the North Carolina Department of Instruction. So a person who's who who works within like an like a, a equity office at a state agency would okay. also be a good person because they because of their position, they have access to many school districts and many school boards because of the position that they have within the state agency. Right. And so they can easily share my information or share my website to all of the constituents and stakeholders within their networks say for schools who are looking to promote DEI, here is a consulting company that offers these services. Um, um, journalists, I mean, <laughs> that's a big part because sort of just getting the word out, right? Um, general marketing, letting people know that there are consulting companies that specialize and have expertise in DEI and anti-racism who have a very particular niche. See, here's the other thing, and I didn't share this, but with my company, we only work with education, nonprofit, and government sectors. So we do okay. not do DEI work with corporations. Okay. And I'm very intentional about that as a business owner. Now, you know, I might take some financial losses, some financial sacrifices with that because corporations, you know, those are those are uh, you know, some some nice paychecks. I'm not gonna lie about that. 
But uh, my value, even my personal value as an educator is that I want to personally work with educators, with school leaders, because that's my background. And because I believe in, in the public, I believe in the public democracy of America. And, um, and, and I value public education in America. Um, I've, I've, you know, I have some issues with public education, particularly with how uh, students of color and marginalized students are being treated. But at the same time, I, um, I respect public education for what it, what it should do and what it should be. So with that being said, we only work with school districts. We only work with universities. We only work with nonprofits. And we only work with government agencies. We don't work with like a Fortune 500 company or right, something right. like that. So yeah. Can I, can I can I throw a quick curveball at you? Sure. The I know you mentioned public. What if somebody wanted to launch their own private school? Would you? Oh yeah. Consider working with them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's a still a school. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. That's still a school. Um. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, uh, we haven't had any clients. You know, all of our clients have been public. So we, mm -hmm. you know, it's just by chance, you know, I mean, we just haven't, you know, the opportunity just hasn't been made available. Okay. But if there's like, say, a parochial school or an independent school, mm -hmm. um, even a charter school, charter schools are considered public schools. Even if right. it is a private school, that's still okay because in my eyes, it's still a school. It's still education. It's just, you know, we don't work with like non-education folks, basically. Right. Right, but even if it is still with private sector within the school within uh, education, that's still fine. Yeah, I really do appreciate the work that you're doing. Uh, I find what you're doing uh, extremely valuable. Thank you. And I want to make sure that this is one of my favorite quotes out there: is play long term games with long term people. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I'm always looking for people that they have their vision, where basically the thing that we're working on it's going to surpass even our lifetime. Right. And that way I know, Hey, this is long-term, you know, what this person is working on. It's not a, a quick thing where it can be fixed overnight and then you'll never right. see him again. So I want to uh, extend our platform that if you want to work and collaborate, uh, whether it's on the podcast, outside of the podcast, okay. I want us to be able to get this equity conversation from all That's facets. True. Right. And I'm glad we're we're talking with you because we haven't had a lot of people in the education space. And sure. so you would be that advocate uh, within our network where people are looking to talk about education, which everybody is at all times. Mm -hmm. uh, you would be that person. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Uh -huh. And uh, you have an open invite at any time to come back on Black Equity Podcast. Uh, if something happens uh, in the news and it's something you just, you, you have to get it out. I know you got your own podcast, mm -hmm. but You're if you good. just wanted to share it, uh, we would love to you know, have you back and have those conversations. Oh, uh, well, I would love to this as well. And, you know, obviously, you know, I like to talk. <laughs> we both do. We both do. Um, but absolutely, absolutely. And, and it's necessary, you know, like that, um, even like what I was saying earlier, about the the value of, of black journalists and, and that's how I see a podcaster like that's how I look at even myself when mm -hmm. I'm when I'm on my podcast show I, I I wear a different hat I'm not a consultant when I'm doing my podcast I am in my journalist mode right, you know right. and that's that's my hat that I wear and that's how I see myself because I'm now saying 
I now have information to share with the public. I have some some news, some updates, you know, that other people just may not be having the conversations about. I'm going to develop a series, um, a podcast series coming up um, focused on um, looking at disproportionality within mm-hmm. discipline, just mm-hmm. focus on discipline. Okay. You know, I'm going to have a three-part series where I'm going to be sharing data and information talking about um, inequities and disparities within um, within discipline rates in this country, you know? So things like that, those are, are more sort of like journalism sort of conversations. And that's needed. That's needed in the fight for equity. You know, that's why Ida B. Wells was so uh, critical during her time period. Um, you know, she was one of the first people to to say, hey, we, we got to put this information out here. These black, you know, black folks is getting lynched, getting killed. You know, and she had her, I forget the name of her news, her her uh, newspaper, um, something with the word red in it. I can't think of it uh, off the top of my head. But yeah, Ida B. Wells, I mean, she's she's a, a, a shero in my book because she was one of the first black women to take up that fight to, to educate America at large about the racial uh, discrimination that black folks were experiencing in terms of lynching. Mm-hmm. in america and she was not afraid to tell people about that and she did that as as you know pretty much as a journalist and you know your podcast is 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 a journalist type of podcast my podcast is a journalist type of podcast so what we are doing what you are doing is also very 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 necessary just as well so um thank you for that and um and i'm very very happy to partner with you and collaborate with you in the future I look forward to it. Just last question, just to make sure for clarity. Uh, are, are there any specific states that you only work in or how does that work if somebody's mm-hmm. listening from any state? Yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, okay. and so, and, and even, um, you know, sometimes it, it can be disheartening to see even what Santos is doing, the Santos is doing in Florida mm-hmm. with the removal of AP African-American status curriculum, because that could have a lot of uh, negative consequences. Other politicians can follow suit and try to introduce similar bills. Um, but within one state, there are so many organizations and agencies that are now prioritizing DEI work. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, I mean, we can work with any any state because there are many different um, agencies that, that require these services. And you have many organizations that after Breonna Taylor and George Floyd in, in 2020 that have made commitments to this work. Right. So um, so that's important. Dr. Manning, I want to thank you again for being uh, a guest or actually a co-host now. Basically, we're co-hosting this together. Uh-oh, let's do uh, it. Come on, Derek. <laughs> I'm game. <laughs> I appreciate you uh, joining us, being part of this conversation. Sure. And I look forward to uh, staying connected and sharing intel and intelligence with one another. And Absolutely. I'll talk to you soon okay. on the next uh, time that you visit Black Equity Podcast. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, thank you to all of the folks who listen. Um, and and I'm always a just one conversation away. I'm happy to, to, to stay connected. Definitely.